This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10% off. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Gerda Lerner, Art House, Giovanna Margo, Counterspin, The Tom Hartman Program, AJ+, Upworthy, Lacey Green, Laura Fonders, Making Contact, and Last Week Tonight. Why is understanding our history so important for us as women? Well, understanding our history is not just important to women. It's important to everybody. It's true. Uh, We define what our goals are and what we think is possible to reach in our lives by the stories we inherit about people who came before us who are like us. But unlike, uh, unlike peasants or unlike uh, uh, working class men, uh, the story of women's contribution has never been coherently told until now until feminist scholarship is filling out Mm -hmm. the gap there. Uh, And so what I wanted to do was to tell this generation Mm -hmm. that is now teaching Mm -hmm. and also that are now the students that first of all nobody gave us anything. Mm -hmm. It makes me furious when I hear that they gave us suffrage. Mm. Excuse me, took 72 years of unrelent—I mean, unbroken organizing grassroots effort to get women's suffrage. It took 113 years to get rid of child labor by law. Uh, it took similarly long periods of organized effort to accomplish any advance in social policy. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing, rule one, nobody gave us anything. We had to fight every inch of the way for every advance and against constant resistance. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like you once fought a battle. Uh, you fought the battle that the story of women should be told. For example, I, uh, I taught at Sarah Lawrence College, which was at the time predominantly a woman's college. Right. And when I proposed to teach a course in women's history, they, they said, Mm. Who needs it? We're a woman's college. Mm. Everything we do is women's history. And I said, not at all. Because you're always telling it from the male point of view, from the male gaze Mm. at women. And the real story is that despite these hundreds of years of discrimination and oblivion, women persisted that they have a story. 
and we had to win every step of the way. We had to win the right to tell this. Mm -hmm. So rule number one, nobody gave us anything. the quote, feminism is the radical notion that women are people. I think it really is just that simple, but over time people have tried to hide that meaning with negative biases and stereotypes and misconceptions that definitely get in the way of women's rights actually happening. I think that a lot more people would be feminists if they knew what it really meant. I define feminism as just being pretty much like pro-equality. When you say feminism, it implies, you know, like for, for women and men, but the idea behind it is just that like you know, it's equality. It's not that radical of a concept. What I really dig about the feminist movement happening right now, the part of it I really like is how people are letting others know that that's all that it means. And as a result, a lot more people are identifying as feminist. A lot of guys are identifying themselves as feminists and coming out and saying they're feminists. And I really like that. I think it's really cool. Being a feminist doesn't mean you don't think there's any differences between men and women. And being a feminist doesn't mean uh, you believe that women should wear pants and suits and ties and be really like, Arr. and being a feminist doesn't mean that you hate men and you don't want them in your life and you think they should be subservient. None of that is what that means. So I just think it's cool that it's kind of getting into this place where a lot of people are going, hey, yeah, I'm a feminist. It's, it's not a big deal. You should be one. I define feminism as a movement for gender equality, um, equal opportunity, equal rights, equal representation in politics. I am a big advocate for feminism. I understand that a lot of people don't like to identify with the word. I'm very comfortable using the word feminism because I think the women that fought for our rights in the past deserve that we carry on using that word. It really disheartens me when people talk about certain issues and say, oh, it's a women's issue and dismiss it completely. But really, these things affect everyone. We just need to encourage more men to see that it makes sense and that it's good and positive and it helps them and it helps all the women in their lives too. I think a lot of people, we grow up with this idea of you know, feminists being, you know, just very angry, they hate men, they hate everything that, you know, a lot of people hold hold dear and they just want to deconstruct everything and da-da-da-da-da, which is not what feminist is, feminism is. Feminism is a lot of things to a lot of different people. I define feminism as basically working towards equality of the sexes, um, and there's many ways to do that, and many people have different um, routes of going into that direction. And feminism is called feminism because we do still live in a society that is heavily misogynistic, 
where women are still paid less than men. And so when we talk about the equality of the sexes, we are specifically talking about the women in society who are still seen as unequal and underqualified because they're women. Feminism is about choices. It's about allowing women to have the, the autonomy over their own bodies and be, to be able to, for example, decide whether or not they want to do um, want to enter the workforce or stay at home. Feminism is something that allows women to make that choice. Feminism is really complicated and the reason why I say that is because there are a lot of ways to define feminism and people define it in different ways and there are a lot of different approaches that one can take to define what feminism is. And that makes it a little bit complex. I feel like most people who are against it just don't really understand what it is. Feminism is a movement moving toward justice, equality, empowerment for people of all genders. That's all it is. That's all it's about. It's not saying anything else. Just, hey, let's all be cool and not have to be fitting in a box. Unfortunately, the feminist movement has had some issues. Racism being a big one. Um, also, um, focusing very specific classism, so focusing very specifically on a certain set of women, uh, and that's no good. That's not, no, that's not what I'm about. That's not what feminism is to me. Feminism needs to lift up all women, and that is why it's really important, or not all women, but all people of all genders, and that's why it is really important for um, feminism to be intersectional, to take into consideration that there are different types of people and different types of people experience oppressive structures differently and that needs to be addressed. A couple days ago We don't love us anymore Yesterday I felt the boy Now I'm caught by a strange voice You can never hold a feeling Don't you understand the meaning Things were changed and forget But if you do you will regret Intersectionality I see a Venn diagram of overlapping social categories. I see colorful pasta intertwined to create mutually constructed identities. I see runners on a track, obstacles set in front of them on the basis of their race and gender. I see privilege and the power to oppress. I see the multi-layered oppression of African-American women. I see gender, race, class, and sexuality. A checklist of categories that places us within this patriarchal hierarchy that we call the world. But when I translate this to the world around me, I don't see intersectionality. I see the media portraying white, middle-class, heterosexual men and women as humanity. I see politicians claiming neutral politics that serve a fictitious majority. I see a public space filled with institutions that were built to serve the hegemonic masculinity and oppress the other. I see centers of knowledge production operated by white men claiming objectivity. Where are the people of color? Where are those outside of the heteronormative framework? Where are the colonized? Where are disabled people? Where is the proletariat? This is what needs to be seen. This is what needs to be made visible. This is the voice that needs to be heard. This is the call for collective subjectivity, which will reshape political, social, and economic structures of oppression and exclusion, which will unmask the identity of the neutral citizen as a white, middle-class, heterosexual man, which will show that his privilege is built upon the exploitation and othering of the marginalized.
But how can the concept of intersectionality be more than a buzzword, more than a checklist of static identity categories, instead something that is used as a methodology that takes into account complex forms of discrimination shaped by history and social structures? And what does intersectionality mean for me, as a white, middle-class American woman, an academic, a feminist, a bearer of privilege, trying to understand the ways in which I reproduce systems of oppression so that I might be part of deconstructing it? It means that I am not humanity, I am not women, I am not objective. I am a standpoint in solidarity with and recognition of society's many unique lived and complex identities. In the words of Adrian Rich, we are, I am, you are. By cowardice or courage, the ones who find our way back to the scene carrying a knife, a camera, a book of myths in which our names do not appear. Readers of the New York Times' Women at Work column came across a familiar, frustrating kind of construction, May 26th. Quote, It turns out that generous maternity leave and flexible rules on part-time work can make it harder for women to be promoted or even hired at all. Close quote. Well, that's one way to put it, and the piece puts it that way repeatedly. Women are paid less in Chile as a result of the law that requires employers to provide childcare for working mothers. Maternity leave measures have meant that European women are less likely to achieve powerful positions at work. Policies intended to mitigate the penalty all women pay for the fact that some of them have primary family care responsibilities, the Times says, quote, end up discouraging employers from hiring women in the first place. Quote. The workplace repression of women is described again and again as the unintended impact of family-friendly policies. Sure, such impacts weren't intended by the policy's drafters, but that makes it sound as though there were no conscious human beings behind decisions to pay working mothers less or not to hire women or promote them. It isn't the policies that make it harder for women, but the male-centric management structure's unwillingness to integrate those policies into the way work is done. Why not say that? The Times suggests it might be better if employers didn't have to pay for policies that make it possible for caregivers to earn a living, or maybe policies should be, quote, generous but not too generous, close quote. Finally, the story floats the idea that making family-supportive measures gender-neutral might alleviate some of employers' punitive responses. That at least starts to broach the societal question that, in a better world, might form the starting point for such an article. Why aren't we talking about making workplaces that support family and community life rather than the other way around?
If you work for yourself and you're looking for a good way to manage all of the accounting headaches that come with self-employment, then you are definitely going to want to check out QuickBooks Self-Employed. It's built with the needs of the entrepreneur in mind, so they make it easy to separate your business expenses from all your personal spending, so those groceries don't get mixed up with the same budget as that business lunch. They also help you track and calculate your business deductions to save you some money at tax time and help you prepare for your quarterly estimated tax payments to keep you ahead of the game. Find out what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you and receive 50% off a full year at tryselfemployed.com slash left. That's tryselfemployed.com slash left. This, there's an article by Catherine Rampell in the Washington Post on May 18th, and uh, so the day before yesterday. And and I read this, and I, I forwarded it to, to Louise, to, to my wife, and, and, and the, the boss of this show, and I said, this is really something. The... This, the story boils down to this. And it's it's all about politics and Capitol Hill in Washington D.C. But it actually, you know, where I want to take this goes much larger than that. And it's that women staffers in the offices of male members of Congress are, by and large, either scared to death, discouraged, or prevented from hanging out alone with their male staffers or with their male uh, boss. Excuse me, their ma- their male member of Congress. If you and and I'm guessing very very few male members of Congress have have a woman as their chief of staff for this reason, and and the reason is Catherine Rampell points out is uh, that the well here here it is she says the worst transgression which multiple women reported this these are reports from women who work on Capitol Hill was a more deliberate inequity. In some offices, only male staffers can spend time one-on-one with their male bosses. So, you know, for example, here here on our radio show, there's there's four of us who are in the office all the time. I mean, you know, Sean's, uh, you know, at a, out in Portland doing the show from, you know, doing booking the show, and Louise is is uh, over at our place booking the show and 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 we've got a bunch of people who work on the show but they're they're not all physically here but there's four of us physically here so in this world if danielle who works for me and actually does a lot of really important work on this show in addition to screening calls you know she helps produce the show and is one of the better of all of us at tracking down really cool stories that we should talk about on the air and stuff like that. And so, you know, we all know each other and we're closely enough. This is a very small company that this is not how it plays out here, but this is how it could play out in a congressional office or, frankly, in corporate America. If I wanted Danielle's advice... And it was, and we just had a long work day, and I said, hey, let's go grab some dinner and talk. Which is how business is done. In fact, if I took Danielle out to dinner, and and we talked about the show, I could even bill the IRS for it, essentially. I could make it a business expense. This is absolutely routine, except not between men and women. Because then, you know, somebody might walk by, 
even take a picture, who knows, and say, ho, ho, what's Tom Hartman doing with this strange woman? Or, you know, if Shane, Danielle's partner, was, uh, if Shano was inclined to be kind of jealous, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be using you guys as examples. I, it's okay? All right. I'm, thank you. <laughs> Shano says it's hilarious. Uh, you know, if, if Shano was one of these, uh, you know, uh, parent, uh, let, let's say insecure husbands or, uh, or partners or whatever, um, he would like, you're doing what with, with, you know, the woman that I live with? And, and it's like, this is one of the really serious barriers to women for advancement in the workplace. Oddly enough, it's probably not so much a barrier for, for men in the workplace. In other words, it wouldn't, so, I, I have no idea what Barbara Boxer or Diane Feinstein's staff looks like and, you know, whether they have women or men as their chiefs of staff or senior staffers or people that they would go out to dinner alone with and consult with. But if they did, odds are nobody would think twice about it. You know, oh yeah, you know, she's out with her chief of staff. Or Jan Schakowsky or any other female member of Congress. And, and this article by Catherine Rempel is, you know, exclusively about Congress. One woman said, there's an office rule, I can't be alone with a congressman. This is a woman who works in a congressman's office. Another said, quote, this is from the Washington Post article by Catherine Rempel, David Fiesta. Another member of Congress, uh, or another woman who works for a member of Congress said, I was not allowed to staff my boss at certain events without another male staffer present because I was a woman. Another said, my former boss never took a closed door meeting with me in the span of working for him off and on over a 12-year stretch, even though I was in a position of senior leadership. Some staffers reported that women were barred, I'm quoting Catherine's article, were barred from driving their bosses around. Who would have guessed that a legislature whose members get periodically obsessed with the imagined encroachment of Sharia law would adopt such Saudi-like vehicular restrictions? And she says basically what, you know, this, uh, these rules which inherently sexualize what should be min mundane work interactions seem predicated on the pre premise that either A, all women are devilish temptresses, irresistible to their libidinous bosses, or B, all women are liars who will fabricate sexual harassment charges at the slightest provocation. So, you know, let's take this a little larger. I mean, is this, we talk about the glass ceiling, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton now wants to crack the ultimate glass ceiling to become president of the United States. Carly Fiorina says, I already cracked the glass ceiling. I know how to do that. You should vote for me. I was the head of HP. But is this where the glass ceiling starts? I think so. Is this a major barrier to the entry into at least the doors of power, the, the old boy network for women? How much does this relate to 6,000 years of civilization, I, I, literally in the United States, right up until about 50, 60, 70 years ago, where women were functionally, and in many cases, legally the property of their husbands. And you could say in many ways, they still are. I mean, in, in the 1970s, we had credit laws where a woman couldn't get credit without her husband co-signing, a married woman.
where women are shortchanged and overlooked, one industry dares to take gender inequality to a whole new level. Hollywood. That's right, it's the start of the summer blockbuster season. And even though half of moviegoers are women, the film biz is one of the most unequal when it comes to gender. And that's why women directors and the ACLU have filed a complaint, petitioning the government to investigate Hollywood's gender bias. How has it come to this? Let's start with the films themselves. In all of last year's films, women made up a mere 13% of lead roles. And for speaking roles, it was only 30%. In comparison, that's only 5% more speaking roles than in the 1940s and 50s. Cheerio. Cheerio. At that rate, women in film won't be on par with men until the year 2295, right around the time rising sea levels wipe out Hollywood. And when we do see women in film, they're often hypersexualized. Over the last few years, 28% of actresses were shown partially naked. That's compared to only 9.5% of men. So unfair. But what about the female powerhouses? Angelina Jolie and Sandra Bullock are running things, right? You'd think, but did you know in 2014 the top 10 actresses made half as much as the top 10 actors? Bullock, the top paid actress, raked in 51 million, but the top paid actor of that year, Robert Downey Jr., made 75 million. And last year's leaked Sony emails further confirmed Hollywood's pay gap. It was revealed that Amy Adams made far less than Bradley Cooper on the profits of American Hustle, even though she played a lead role and had more screen time. But behind the camera, the gender imbalance is especially stark. There are five times more men than women working on top-grossing films. That's the same ratio of men to women in active duty, and that number hasn't changed since the 90s. Also, only 1.9% of blockbusters in the last two years were directed by women. I spoke with Maria Geis, an indie filmmaker with 20 years of experience in Hollywood. It's really extraordinary and hypocritical, I think, that in liberal democratic Hollywood, we have the worst numbers of gender discrimination of any industry in the United States. It really is that bad. She was fed up with sexism in the Directors Guild of America, an 80-year-old group of mostly men, which Geis says sets the tone of the industry. So she called on the ACLU to intervene. Hollywood is an industry, and Hollywood is not exempt from our civil rights laws. I really felt that if the ACLU didn't come through for me and for us women directors, that I wasn't going to be able to do anything. The ACLU filed an official complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Tinseltown is a boys club, Geist says, and nobody wants to take a risk by hiring a female director. What do you say to someone who says, well, what does it matter that there are women in the industry? When you have a woman director, then you're going to get a more accurate picture of gender and, and more authentic portrayals of women. Our television shows and our feature films are the cultural voice of our civilization. And when you have the cultural voice of our civilization reflecting just one gender, then you're not getting an accurate portrayal of, of what our world looks like. The evidence is clear. So when will it finally be a wrap for sexism in film? If building a website isn't your idea of a good time, then it's possible that it's one of the biggest things holding you back from realizing a dream you have or starting that business you have in mind. 
We're lucky these days because Squarespace makes it easy to build sites that look professionally designed regardless of skill level. Unfortunately for me, when I started this show back in 2006, Squarespace didn't exist. Building my first website for this show was difficult, time-consuming, and the result was nothing less than embarrassing. This is totally true. After I'd been producing this show for several months or maybe a year or so, I got an email from a listener who said that he had found the show and loved it and insisted that he be allowed to build me a new website for free because the one I had was so bad that it was basically bringing shame on my otherwise good show. So that is exactly what he did, and I ended up with a better website, but I was completely dependent on the kindness of strangers at that point forward. If Squarespace had been around then, I would have gotten off on the right foot to begin with and avoided all of that embarrassment. You can get off on the right foot by starting your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code LEFT to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support of this show. Seeking. Beautiful girl. Non-speaking. Seeking. Bikini babe. To stand with another bikini babe. Seeking girlfriends of male principles. Seeking female. Real, honest, but not too butchy. These are actual casting calls that we see on a daily basis. Words like attractive, hot, sexy. The fact that I keep constantly going in for these roles that's all about my body just frustrates me and it makes me feel like I'm nothing more than just like a shell. My experiences in the industry have discouraged me, which is unfortunate and I wish that weren't the case. It feels like my voice doesn't matter. An outsider who just sees this one thing may say, it's not that big a deal. If you don't like it, then don't be an actress. But it's important to remember that these things do not occur in a vacuum. When the media portrays women as objects, as second-class citizens, uh, that kind of subconsciously gives society the green light to do so as well. Seeking. Drunken girl slapper at a party. Actress must have easy access skirt in which to be taken from behind. Consent to have fake vomit thrown on her. I got called in for roles where the characters were 14, but they needed someone over the age of 18 because they wanted to have graphic sex scenes in the movies. So basically, kitty porn this is not okay. I just want to see women portrayed as humans. I want to see people going through the same struggles as their male counterparts in these shows, you know. When people are three-dimensional, it's always better. There's nothing lost by that. What does she do? What does she like? Who is she? What are her problems? What, is she, what are her goals? The reason why we do this is because we want to tell stories and we want to create narratives and we want to be part of inspiring people to think about other people and, and the inner workings of themselves and each other, not because we want to be set pieces moved around, not because we want to be sex objects. We just want to play human beings rather than bodies. That's it. are true what they've been saying about me I have to come clean I Lacey Green am a feminist 
What? You're a lesbian now? Man-hater? Hairy armpits? Hated so! It's gonna be okay. Those are just stereotypes. I think that feminism is both kick-ass and super important. And here are a few of my reasons why. I'm a feminist because girls are taught in public school that once she has sex, she'll lose a part of herself. Because women who have a lot of sex are sluts while guys are studs. Amanda Todd, Felicia Garcia, Sharice Morales. Because of the sexism that drove them to end their lives. I'm a feminist because I was told the first time I had sex would be painful and bloody. I was terrified. Because one in four young women is assaulted and society still asks, what was she wearing? Because male victims of rape aren't believed since guys want sex all the time anyway, right? Because of catcalling and street harassment. Because no, it is not a f***ing compliment. But feminist because my first boyfriend sexually assaulted me. And when I went to my friends for help, they called me a slut. Because when I speak at universities about the absolute necessity of consent, there are people in the audience who laugh. Because boobs are used to sell everything from burgers to soap, but don't you dare breastfeed out in the open. Because this shocks and terrifies people. I'm not even kidding. You should see some of the looks that I get. I'm a feminist because of how much pressure we put on girls to value their appearance above everything else. Because of labiaplasties, boob jobs, hymenoplasties. Because our culture considers it normal to cut off part of an infant's penis. I'm a feminist because male orgasm in the movies is rated PG-13, while female orgasm is rated R. I'm a feminist because in 2013 there were over 700 bills proposed to regulate a woman's body. And for men, the rightful number, zero. I'm a feminist because the political body making decisions about my body is over 80% male. Wow. Because men occupy the top rungs of not just politics, but every industry in the world. I'm a feminist because jobs, jobs. Women only hold one in four STEM jobs. They own 6% of TV stations, 5% of executive positions in the media. Because when I was younger and I took on a leadership role, all the adults in my life said, you're big bossy. And let's not forget that sneaky little pay gap. By the time the average woman reaches 60 years old, she will have made $450,000 less than a man in the same exact position. That's like a fancy-ass house, a truckload of chocolate bars, or 10. And hell, I'm not even surprised by it. At my first job, I learned that my less qualified male co-worker was making almost twice as much as me. I'm a feminist because the media told me that women are my competition, destroying my friendships with them for almost 20 years. Because gender roles! Because of that one-size-fits-all binary that shoves us into boxes and erases who we are. I'm a feminist because in 10th grade, someone called my best friend a pussy and it tore him up for weeks. And I realized the worst insult was to be compared to a woman. Because boys are shamed for being emotionally open. Because that's a girl thing. And womanhood is weak. Weak! <laughs> Never mind the fact that it was most likely a woman who pushed your body out of her vagina. I'm a feminist because my father never once did the laundry, made dinner, or cleaned the house. When I suggested he help, my grandpa told me I was out of my damn mind. Wow. Wow. Out of my mind. Am I taking crazy pills? I'm a feminist because people still say that asexual, bisexual, and trans folk don't exist. I'm a feminist because same-sex marriage is a no-brainer. Because in 34 states, it's legal to discriminate against someone who's transgender. Really? Really? I'm a feminist because representation, it matters. And LGBT folks, women, and particularly women of color, hardly ever have their stories told on screen. I'm a feminist because I believe that the world should be safe for girls everywhere. Because half the girls in Yemen will become child brides. Because 65% of Brazilians believe that a woman who dresses in revealing clothes deserves to be raped. Because in Saudi Arabia, women still can't vote or drive. I'm a feminist because in every corner of the world, every day, women's bodies are used as a battleground in wars started by men. Raped, beaten, sold into slavery, mutilated, burned with acid. I'm a feminist because when I dare to get pissed off at injustice, I'm just another angry feminist who's on her 
period. Ugh. I'm a feminist because of the reality that there are people who would take these words more seriously if they are coming out of my mouth. Most of all, I'm a feminist because I believe in gender equality. My eyes are open. My mind is active. I know we're not there yet. I'm Laura Flanders of Grit TV. You rape our women and you're taking over our country, Dylan Roof is reported to have said as he opened fire on African Americans in Charleston, killing nine. His claim to act in women's, which is to say white women's defense, is as old as white male supremacy itself, and it's been refuted for just as long. Ida B. Wells Barnett was the first to debunk lies like Roof's. Over a century ago, she reported the facts and led the campaign to stop lynching at once. Jesse Daniel Ames, a white single mother of three, responded to the cool. Ames founded the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching in 1930 and gathered tens of thousands of signatures on a pledge that read in part, quote, Public opinion has accepted too easily the claim of lynchers and mobsters that they are acting solely in defense of womanhood. We dare no longer to permit this claim to pass unchallenged, close quote. White supremacist killers have never stopped using the false pretext of acting in women's defense. Women of color, as well as men, have perished as a result, and not just in the U.S., because not only vigilantes, but also our politicians have used the pretext of protecting women to defend their wars. In my lifetime alone, from the invasion of Grenada to rescue white female medical students to the invasion of Iraq, there's not been a war of empire that wasn't waged in women's name, to devastating result on women and men alone like. One thing's for certain, said George W. Bush shortly after the invasion of Iraq, there won't be any more mass graves and torture rooms and rape rooms. Ha! His own global torture regime was just then taking root. The interests white supremacist patriarchal killers serve are their own, their own, their own. Self-appointed watchman George Zimmerman and killer policeman Daniel Pantaleo, Dante Servin and the rest do not serve or protect people in peril. They put us there, as do our packed prisons and jails and all the rapacious businesses that make pathological private profits of public pain. Just to be clear, I am not Dylan Roof's woman. Racist patriarchal violence does not make me safe. It divides me from people I love and tells me real lies about who and what actually pose a real threat to my life. White, female, queer, I also know by now that one of white supremacy's goals is to keep me in my place, silent and separate from my sisters and others with whom I might otherwise make common cause. I refuse and I'm not alone. Women of all colors refute this violence and reject the claim that this killing is in our name. We pledge to act. A statement is right now being finalized. If you want to sign up or find out more, write to me, laura at grittv.org.
York. I'm from the Bay Area. I'm 14 years old, and uh, <laughs> um, I'm sorry if this poem is like super loud and like yelly and angry. But I wrote, I <laughs> I wrote this. Um, <laughs> I wrote this poem um, right after I heard about the UCSB shooting, and so angry and loud and yelly was the only thing that I could be. So. I ride the subway with my legs crossed and think of all of the ways that I can make myself disappear. I have been taught to grow into myself. That I have always been too much or never enough. Apologies have bitten at my words for every time that I choose to wear anything less or more than asking for it. I have caught myself pulling down the hem of my skirt more times than I have spoken with confidence. There are things that women do in order to survive. We are being hunted and made into battered mountains of flesh stowed away in college campuses and behind bedroom doors. Newscasts have started to sound like witch hunts. In the 17th century, women were accused of casting spells upon members of Puritan colonies. They were tortured for not fulfilling the expectations they were crowned with since conception. So let me bewitch, burn me at the stake, watch my ashes rise from the ground and carry the idea of me like a lantern. Let me be a wicked woman. Let me claw the male entitlement out of your diaphragm. Let me dismember every part of this patriarchy. You can nail me to your crosses. You can let flames lick my body. You can scald my flesh, but you can never hate this fire out of me. I will not fault myself for every time that I am afraid of showing my legs. Femininity is as powerful as sorcery. Our bodies strung from white picket fences like Salem. Men's eyes sear holes into my skin like having every inch of you melted off just to see if there was really anything underneath. Bitch rings like witch in my ears. Cat calls synonymous with death sentences. These streets are no safer today for a wicked woman than they were 400 years ago. There is sorcery burning underneath my flesh like fires of 1692. But women know that our fight for survival sometimes means less alchemy and illusion and more of making bomb shelters out of our skin. Powerful women do not always need to prove it. We perform disappearing acts on the train home. We hold our breath when we are approached by strangers. Sometimes wicked women need to cloak our magic to keep from being burned alive. Hi, um, I'm Caitlin Clark. I'm 14 years old and I'm from the Bay Area, California. So I wrote that poem a few months ago after I heard the news about the UC Santa Barbara shooting. And um, I just wrote the poem keeping in mind all of the things that women go through daily and also more of the extreme things that we see on the news and 
the wide spectrum between that and kind of um, seeing the comparison between the brutal things that women have to do to survive every day. I kind of discovered poetry, specifically like spoken word poetry this year, and I started writing um, about three months ago. So poetry has had like an incredible impact on my life, and I think it has the power to change a lot of things and open a conversation about some things that we are afraid of talking about in daily life. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Finally. In case you missed it, women do not have equal rights in this country. The Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced in 1923, three years after the 19th Amendment gave women the vote. Early women's rights activists knew that the vote was just the beginning. Real equality was more than dropping a ballot in the box. They sought to add, quote, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex, unquote, to the Constitution to enshrine full equality quality of the sexes into our founding document. Congress finally passed the ERA in 1972, and 35 states ratified it, three states short of the constitutional requirement. The ERA has been reintroduced in every legislative session since it stalled in 1982, one year before I was born, when the time to ratify it expired, but it continually fails to garner support. This is in part because a generation after the campaign to adopt the ERA, most Americans assume the Equal Protection Clause to the 14th Amendment or the right to vote in the 19th actually dissolved any disparities between cis men and everyone else. In her statement of support for the renewed effort to ratify the ERA, California Congresswoman Jackie Speer said, quote, The time is ripe to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Seventy percent of people polled think that we already have an ERA in the Constitution, and they're shocked to find out we don't have one, unquote. She's backed up by Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who said, quote, If I could choose an amendment to add to this Constitution, it would be the Equal Rights Amendment, unquote. The Equal Rights Amendment Coalition is taking RBG's words to heart. If women are to be equal in stature before the law, we need a guarantee that can't be repealed, an amendment to the Constitution rather than just a piece of legislation subject to the whims of Congress. Supporting this common-sense and long-overdue amendment is as easy as signing a petition at moveon.org and visiting eracoalition.org, where you can take the pledge to support the ERA and send a message to your legislators asking them to become supporters of equality. You can also keep an eye out for the upcoming documentary, Equal Means Equal, which depicts the modern-day disparities for women in every area from reproductive rights to paid family leave to equal pay, and follow and use the hashtags equalmeansequal equal 
and hashtag ERA now. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If real equal rights for all genders matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about passing the ERA via social media so that others in your network can get involved. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Finally this week, money. Uh, it turns out, if you offer Robert De Niro enough of it, he'll appear in The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Uh, this week brought a very exciting development in US currency. The $10 bill is being redesigned and will feature the first woman on the nation's paper currency in more than a century. Great. That, that, that feels, why not? That feels like progress. Of the embarrassingly late kind. It's, it's kind of like when a company announces their first female vice president. It makes you think, really? Okay, well, congratulations on finally doing the second least you could do. <laughs> and even in this instance, it turns out campaigners had been hoping for something a little more. The pick of the $10 bill is a bit of a surprise. Over the last several months, a campaign to put a woman on the $20 bill went viral. Yeah. Of course they wanted the 20. The 20 is a much better bill to be on. The only person in America who regularly uses the 10 is Richard Gere, and that's only to show his hairstylist the look that he's going for. A look that he has nailed. He has nailed it. Now, Tre Treasury Secretary Jack Lew was actually asked why women had only been offered the 10, and he responded in magnificently awkward fashion. What would you say to people who say, you know, the 10, it's not as prestigious as the $20 bill. You can't get that at every ATM. I think the $10 bill is a pretty big deal. <laughs> but, not, but it's not the 20. You know, I, I, I think uh, the $10 bill is, is one of our most widely used bills. And um, it is, uh, I think, is as important as the 20. <laughs> Bullshit! It's as important as the 20. Bullshit! That's the equivalent of claiming Liam Hemsworth is as important as Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> You're fooling yourself. Liam's useful, sure, he'll do you in a pinch, but he's exactly half as good as Chris. End of discussion. Hashtag half a Hemsworth. End of discussion. And the, the, the crazy thing is, it actually makes much more sense to kick Andrew Jackson off the 20 than Alexander Hamilton off the 10. Hamilton was America's first Treasury Secretary. He proposed setting up both a national bank and a national mint. Andrew Jackson didn't even trust paper money. Jackson took a kind of fundamentalist view of money and credit. Gold and silver dollars were real money. Paper was, in some sense, fake. That's true. Andrew Jackson hated paper money, and yet we've stamped his face all over it. It, it would be like having Guy Fieri-branded quinoa. Or, or putting Tom Cruise's face on an antidepressant ad. That, that would make him furious, and you don't want that. He's OT level 16. He can move objects with his mind. He could do it. But the thing is, in an amazing twist, it turns out Hamilton won't be completely shut out of the $10 bill after all. 
If you're a big fan of Alexander Hamilton, don't despair. The Treasury Department says that his image will remain in some way on at least some of the $10 bills. Oh, so a woman's not getting her own bill at all. She'll be splitting it with Alexander Hamilton. This is basically the perfect embodiment of the women's rights movement. Women ask us something they've earned, a bunch of men get together and talk about it, and then they give the women half and ask her to share it. Hey, Jay, this is Marty from Eagle Rock, California, responding to Sunny, who talked about her pursuits in healing herself, and her story was amazing and inspiring, and she brought to focus the mind-body relationship and how we should be skeptical of the medical establishment. And I agree that we have become this society where when we feel pain, we immediately seek out a, a pill to remedy our discomfort, as opposed to exploring the roots of our suffering. In a, in a holistic approach. But where she lost me is when she started praising homeopathy. She said something to the effect of, when I found out the medical community was against it, I happily embraced homeopathy. So my objection is the idea that we should celebrate our rejection of science and empiricism, as if this is some sort of act of liberalism. As progressives, we constantly mock the right for adhering to the Bible in the face of evolution. And we use hard data and facts to fight against climate change deniers. But then when it comes to medicine, so many of us ignore science because it doesn't feel right. It feels weird. I support a progressive agenda because it is supported by data and driven by evidence. And if you apply the same standards of science that we do to climate change to homeopathy, homeopathy fails. And you can say that, oh, this herbal remedy diluted a billion times cured my friend's cancer, or that an undetectable amount of phosphoric acid cured my diabetes, and cancer and diabetes, horrible diseases. But it's akin to James Inhofe throwing a snowball onto the Senate floor and saying that global warming is a hoax, because it's just anecdotal. It's not driven by science, and when it comes to medicine especially, you have to do the science. And to be fair, in the medical world, there are countless instances where big pharma and crappy doctors have done terrible things because of corporate greed or the manipulation of power. But in its pure form, science is self-corrective. So we have to continue to fight corruption in all its forms. So we should be dogged in our pursuit of effective medical treatments backed by science and then call out the treatments that fail and the system isn't perfect. In the case of Vioxx, Merck made billions of dollars off this drug that they knew was killing people. And eventually it was taken off the market. And I think we should apply the same thing to homeopathy. These are drugs that are not effective, and we should condemn them until these homeopaths have proven under the same scrutiny that we give penicillin, vaccinations, evolution, and climate change to be effective. And to me, that's how a, an open democratic system should work.
Hey Jay, this is Chris Fred, uh, fellow podcaster from Seattle. I just wanted to respond to your call of the, hey, I think this different thing about me enriches my life or makes me and those around me happier. And while I identify as queer, and I very much feel that the bigotry and pain that I endured from this during my formative years played a vital role in who I am today, that's not my reason for calling in. What does make me different from most people is that for the past 13 or so years, I've identified as polyamorous. And for those not familiar with this term, polyamory, in the simplest terms, is the ethical, consensual, and responsible practice of non-monogamy. And consensual being the paramount definer above all. And my journey as a polyamorous individual is basically the common denominator that's helped me better understand myself and, and those around me over the years. Since I started practicing it, yes, I've, I've had bumps, you know, but just like monogamous people do, at no time whatsoever throughout this did I feel that, you know, the poly thing was the cause of these problems. What was the cause were, you know, my own issues, you know, at, at the time it was my denial or uh, my stubbornness to adapt or, you know, the myriad of other issues that plague us all on a daily basis. These were the root sources of my problems, you know, not my identity as a non-monogamous individual. And in truth, the practice of poly and, you know, the amazing, utterly awesome, like-minded people I've had the privilege of meeting over the years that practice it as well, that's what's helped me conquer many of my own demons. And I can hear a lot of naysayers already, and um, is poly for everybody? I mean, no, of course not. And it's very important to me. I, I never want to give the impression that I, I look down on anybody or, or I'm judgmental of those who choose to lead. Uh, a monogamous lifestyle but that's just it that's the rub for me the choice like I don't think a lot of people feel or even know that they have a choice truth be told you know it's either you know monogamy uh, you know slash the norm or you know you're sick in the head and you're just thinking of yourself and your own bodily pleasure blah 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 you know insert poorly camouflaged puritanical reasoning here i'm i'm just here to say that i i think i'm living proof that there is a choice and i think my life really has been enriched a thousandfold by that choice and i'm very much in love with my wife and have been since the first day that i you know met her and uh yeah we both have girlfriends and or boyfriends both of us you know who all know about each other and everyone's okay with it like really like Everyone knows about everybody else, and that's awesome, and we think that's really awesome. Yeah, I may be a little different, I guess. We may be, but uh, I strive to live all aspects of my life honestly, and I think that's what most people are trying to do. So that's about it, Jay. Uh, thank you and uh, Katie like so much. You guys, you guys are both two of the shining gems in the starry sky that is my life. And I very much treasure having this opportunity to share a little bit about myself and what the practice is for me. So thank you so much for that. Uh, so, yep, peace out and be excellent to each other. Hey, Jay, this is Isaac from D.C. Just responding to your request for stories about what makes uh, people uh, happy and what they do a little bit differently. Uh, for me, it's surfing. I know a lot of people surf, a lot of people get enjoyment from it, but I like to think that for me it has a special place in my heart. I 
grew up on the Jersey Shore. My mom taught me to surf when I was four, and I surfed for my whole life growing up. Fast forward a little bit, moved around a lot, actually got married and uh, into a pretty terrible relationship that lasted far longer than it should have. I uh, ended up pretty depressed about the whole situation when my wife uh, left me for another man, and uh, I just stopped eating and stopped sleeping for a couple months actually until I ended up in an emergency room and didn't know how I got there. And I was uh, about 5'11 and weighed about 90 pounds and they didn't know what to do with me. So they sent me to a rehab a psychiatric hospital for people with eating disorders and set me on a strict refeeding program and some psychological counseling, um, medication, uh, and pretty much just uh, nursing my body back to health after almost complete organ failure. And I remember when I was in the psychiatric unit, I, I remember thinking to myself, why, why should I go on at this point? Why shouldn't I just die at that point? And um, the only real reason I could come up with is because I wanted to go surfing again. And at the time it was absurd because my brain was shrunk, my organs were shrunk, my bones were brittle. It was, uh, I didn't know if how, how I was going to really make it out of this. But I remember telling myself, I want to get better so I can go surfing again. Well, I got better. I gained about 60 pounds, actually even more than that, uh, um, healthy, fit now. And I've been surfing again for a couple more years. It's been a challenge. It's uh, encouraged me to take my health uh, seriously, uh, both mentally, physically, uh, spiritually, if you want to use that word. Um, not a religious person, but I find surfing provides this otherworldly kind of uh, drive for me ever since I was nearly died and decided that I, I wanted to, to live to go surfing again. I've traveled the world now several times over in the past couple of years, surfing new spots. I rode a 15-foot wave in South Africa last year. It was one of the most incredible moments of my life. I actually got remarried to a wonderful woman and then recently had a new baby daughter who, of course, I'm going to teach her to go surfing it might seem kind of different to other people but it's just something that I do um, day in and, and day out my wife to this day knows that when a big swell comes and uh, she understands the importance that it has to me to, to go and to just be in the water and to just catch some waves and and really uh, reset myself and, and think about what really matters which is just life and family and and that's what surfing has done for me so kind of out of the ordinary just thought i would share that with you and your listeners but uh yeah love the podcast love everything you do jay take it easy bye Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. In either case, the closer you keep your message to two minutes or under, the better your chance of actually having it played, just so you know. Now, you will not be surprised to hear that I got several responses to Sunny. Uh, I played the most polite one, let's put it that way. Uh, some certainly said that she was, you know, crazy or shameful to have, or a bad person, and that, uh, you know, I should feel shame for having played the message at all. And, you know, having conversed with Sunny, I am quite confident that she will, you know, brush off any criticism with a smile and move on with her life. 
As for me, I deny that by having played Sonny's message that I was actually promoting homeopathy. Uh, Sonny tends to agree with me on that. She thinks that I didn't talk about it at all and, and just, you know, played her message. Uh, and I certainly play messages I disagree with all the time. Sometimes I respond to them directly. Sometimes I know that they will inspire a response from others. So I just wait. I let those messages come in and then I play them as a rebuttal, which is what I did here. Um, besides, I, I barely thought that Sonny was even endorsing homeopathy for anyone but herself. I mean, she certainly says she likes it, but, you know, she was poking fun at herself for having tried it, explicitly said it was unscientific, so it's not like she was hiding anything. And then she went on to say that she still believes that people should use traditional medicine. So frankly, you know, if anyone had called in saying we needed to stop using traditional medicine, we need to switch to something like homeopathy, I highly doubt that I would have played it unless it was explicitly to refute it. Um, now, as for the other two messages we got today, which I thought were great, it seems like the theme today is to follow your bliss. And it seems to me that one of the biggest challenges people have today is A, figuring out what really makes them happy, and B, even if they know what makes them happy, they struggle to find a way to make their life go in that direction so they can incorporate that bliss of theirs into their everyday lives more often. Now, society, I think, is structured in a way to have an enormous sort of invisible funnel at every stage of life. You know, when you're very young, the world is wide open. You can do whatever you want. But every step forward you take, you're going deeper and deeper into this funnel that begins to restrict your options on either side. So the further you go, the narrower your options, and the result is that a stunning number of people all end up doing basically the same thing in basically the same way as everyone else, you know, broadly speaking. And this isn't the fault of any individual. It's the natural result of a system that's built to benefit from the status quo where everyone is acting in basically the same way because, you know, it's more efficient that way. You can, you know, sell things in bulk. You, you get the idea. So incentives are put in place everywhere to make it seem reasonable to act like everyone else, even if that's not what would make you genuinely happy. Just cre it creates this sort of veneer of happiness because you think, well, I'm fitting in, so I must be happy. But doesn't necessarily work out that way. Now, the really difficult part is figuring out how to break free from those restrictive funnels we find ourselves in, and this usually involves getting a broader perspective on life that gives you a clear glimpse of what's really important to you, and then with that newfound vision, one can work to reorient their life to match their true priorities. Unfortunately for most people, it is incredibly difficult to get a glimpse of that broader perspective, and sometimes it only comes during or immediately after a life-threatening situation, which frankly is a pretty inconvenient thing to have to go through just to figure out what's important in life. Now, Caller Isaac, who we just heard from, went through a life-threatening situation and came out more clear-eyed on the other side, but let's just imagine an anonymous person for this uh, example, so a person is a, a passenger on a plane, the engines lose power, seems like they're going to crash, and this passenger suddenly has a clear vision of everything that's really important to her. Unfortunately, that vision could be very short-lived because, you know, one of two things can happen. Either the plane crashes and that epiphany goes to waste, or it doesn't and that passenger has a newfound clarity on what she really values in life. Now, either way, that is a really high price to pay for that sort of clarity. But here's the real tragedy. Everything we know about human psychology tells us that that newfound clarity and appreciation for life that that passenger found during her brush with death 
isn't going to last. Maybe a few months, maybe even a year or two with you know lingering flashes of memory that last longer, but not forever. And eventually she's going to fall back into whatever old equilibrium her life had before, you know, more or less. You know, eventually she's going to forget to appreciate every minute of life and every friend, every loved one, every adventure. It's going to fade away. Now, if there were only a way of getting a glimpse of that kind of life-clarifying vision, A, in a way that didn't require almost dying, and B, that lasted more than a few months or a couple of years at best. Well, in the last episode, I walked you through what's called a negative visualization of life after losing your hearing as a way of demonstrating how you can actually gain new appreciation for things you already have by imagining what it would be like to not have them. So what would it be like if you applied that same technique to the concept of death. Now, obviously, nobody likes to contemplate their own death, but what if doing so, only on occasion and only for a short interval, actually helped you live a better life? Actually helped you, you know, appreciate the life that you already have? Or helped you make improvements to the life that you already have? Now, if you take a few minutes to contemplate your own death, not in a way that you're worrying about it, but just contemplating it calmly, you know, what thoughts come to mind? Do you begin to get a clarified vision of what really matters in your life? And if so, when you compare that clarified vision of what matters in life to how you actually live your day-to-day -day life, is there a big gap between the two? Do you spend a lot of time doing stuff that you know doesn't matter and doesn't even bring you that much happiness that could be better spent pursuing things that really do matter? Well, again, I've got some great news for you. You are not dead and absolutely nothing is stopping you from changing the way you live your life. And on top of that, you just learned a new skill for gaining the life-affirming clarity of near-death experiences from the safety of wherever you want to be anytime you want. And just to be super duper clear about this, when I talk about these kinds of negative visualization exercises, I'm not talking about worrying. Negative visualization is very healthy as a way of boosting happiness and appreciation and expanding our perspective. But if you tip over into the world of worrying about things you cannot possibly control, then you are in for a world of hurt. Worrying about the possibility of going deaf or of dying unexpectedly or of anything else you have no control over is an enormous waste of time, a terrible drain on your emotional energy, and just all around unhealthy in basically every way. So I just want to make that clear. I was telling a friend about negative visualization the other day, you know, in real life, and used the example of contemplating the death of loved ones in order to gain an even deeper appreciation for them. And the friend responded that she's like, oh yeah, you know, I worry about my cat dying all the time. So, you know, I must be on the right path. And I had to explain it. Really, no, no, that is not at all what I'm saying. And that actually sounds really unhealthy. So keep the messages coming in. I am loving hearing these stories from people who have sent them in so far. The number again, 202-999-3991, or you can record a message on your phone, email it to me, j at bestofleft.com. And before I go, quick thanks to Intuit QuickBooks for sponsoring today's episode. If you work for yourself, you can save up to 50% for an entire year on the new QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses and helps take the guesswork out of estimated quarterly taxes. Try QuickBooks Self-Employed and receive 50% off at tryselfemployed.com slash left. Now that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a 
member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained